For January 1st, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 496. Michelle Yeoh with a goatee is still out there. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends on the internet. We're never happier than when we're watching the things we love, listening to the music, reading the books, watching the movies and TV, and we uh, gather together and talk about them, because anything you enjoy is more fun when you share it with your smart, funny, overthinking it friends. I'm Matt Rather, your host. I am here with Overthinking It podcast regulars Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. And our topic tonight is uh, Star Trek Discovery, the uh, the show that began uh, in the fall on CBS All Access, CBS's streaming service, uh, and is shortly to return to that service after a hiatus, and uh, is uh, sort of the inaugural, not the inaugural show, but the kind of the after the good fight, the first big thing that they've marketed uh, on on this network, and is the latest entry, a serialized entry into the Star Trek uh, franchise, though whether it is or not, I think is a question that we're going to have to talk about. Now, because we're talking about Star Trek, we have our good friend Manu Sadia with us. Manu, welcome back to the Overthinking It podcast. Hi, people. It's very good to uh, to talk to you. Manu is the author of Treconomics, the economics of Star Trek, and writes uh, all over the internet on the topic of Star Trek and uh, science and technology topics generally. Uh, it's really good to uh, it's really good to have you back. I gather you've been watching Star Trek Discovery. Yes. It's, and I have questions. Oh, good. <laughs> well, we have overthoughts to uh, <laughs> we have overthoughts to go with your questions. But um, but I mean the the I guess the thing that I I want to start with Manu is what what are your just sort of general impressions? Right, this is a show that's very different in tone from other entries uh, in in you know the Star Trek TV show stakes races you know and uh what as you as you watch this one just in in uh, at kind of a high level what what are the the things that you notice most that jump out to you most for this uh, Star Trek? I, I don't know about you guys but like the production value uh you see the money on the screen it's 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 really amazing like the special effects the that they actually made klingons look like aliens you know because they actually had the budget uh it's it's pretty impressive, I think, in terms of what it looks like. Uh, it's it's cinematic quality. Sure. Uh, so that's really something that jumps out, at least to me, you know, and that they had Michelle Yeh and, you know, it's like big, big Asian star and uh, lots of battles. It's very operatic. Um, it's it's very impressive on that level. Like the the I think it's a real break from. The kind of Star Trek we're used to, where uh, it's a, you know like they reuse the sets a lot and it looks a little dinky and um, and it's not so much about the set and the money on the screen, but the you know like in the old Star Trek, but it's a TNG and all that. It's it's more about the characters and eh, you know it looks how it looks and sometimes it looks good and sometimes you know they have to do bottle episodes like 
only on the on the set and no going out because they run out of money. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> you know so so it's it's when they have those episodes where um, the whole crew like has problems. <laughs> yeah, you know, I remember. I just yes. explained this concept to my fiance because we were watching the episode of season two of Star Trek Voyager where the doctor just wakes up and it's the doctor <laughs> and everyone's gone. And I read the description. It's like, oh, it's a bottle episode with the doctor. Yeah. It's a bottle episode. It's like a ship in a bottle. And I, it, the classic bottle episode that gets mentioned when people kind of talk about it with with reverence is the one from Breaking Bad called The Fly, where it's just the two of them in the lab having a conversation while trying to kill a fly. But the one where Robert Picardo is like, we have to go to the bridge. We have to go to engineering. And it's all of the different (laughs) sets that you know already exist that he has to go to. Uh, He spends a lot of time in his med bay uh, kind of asking questions of himself and looking at things that he normally doesn't look at. It's a great opportunity to focus somewhat more tightly on pieces of the furniture that have to this point only been shot by an angle. That's yeah, the I mean, opportunity it, of the bottle. It, it doesn't seem like there will be a bottle episode in that very short, you know, 13 uh, is it 13 or 15 episode uh, uh, run. I mean, it's... Well, you can. I mean, in a show where most of the sets don't actually exist, right? Like, and in a uh, television production sort of system where, you know, I guess, I guess Star Trek has always used uh, green screen, right? They they were using green screen back when it was blue. Uh, yeah. The, uh, you know, that's how, how old they are. Um, she, uh, the, the show, like, uh, but the show, this one is just so heavily CGI that, you know, you can't, yeah. um, you, you can't, you, I'm not sure you'd save much money no matter what set you're on. I guess maybe I don't the, know if you guys maybe remember, the break set. They built, they did build like a lot of the sets. Uh, the the Klingon ship was built as a set, mm. and I remember because I <laughs> I was following the production news and all that. Yeah, I know. Uh, and so the Klingon ship was built as a set. Like uh, the the Discovery, it's like all built. Uh, so it's actually. Yeah, no, they, they they poured a lot of money, and you see it on the screen. Like, you really do. Uh, I don't think it's... I, I think, you know, on that score, it's very stunning. It's, it's movie-level quality. Uh, this is the new age of television. It's like, you know, Game of Thrones, which actually doesn't look dinky at all. Um, so, Manu... We get the yes. best of both worlds, right? <laughs> and stats, uh, dazzling visuals, as well as great character development and plot, right? 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 <laughs> so uh, I want to say... Uh, 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 there lies my question. I think, um, I mean, it's... Personally, I you know, the actors are great. The material is great. The I mean, to me, it? the fundamentally, the problem is the... The problem is the premise. Ha. Huh. All right, that's 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 uh, interesting, Pete. What were you about to say? Oh, I was just saying that if we've gone to the point where the value of high level uh, TV is that it's like movies, maybe we've gone from the golden age of television to the silver age of television, the silver screen the age silver of television. Screen. So this is it. If Stranger Things and Game of Thrones are silver age shows, then then maybe Star Trek Discovery is as well. Right. So, I mean, it, what you're saying, Manus, is uh, uh, is 
super interesting to me. The premise, um, I mean, are, are we meant to be in the original, the uh, TOS continuity? Or are we meant to be in the Abrams continuity? Uh, what is the, you know are what we? I mean? Uh, yeah. I, We're I, meant I to be in the TOS continuity. Yeah. It's I, meant to be the continuity of the original Star Trek roughly 10 years before the yes. events of the original Star Trek. But other sorts of details of context have been somewhat sparsely mentioned so there's going to be there's going to be some sort of cataclysmic uh event that happens right like uh, on the timeline between this and the james t kirk enterprise or the christopher pike enterprise i should say uh Hmm. where the um uh where the technology uh becomes you know 60 percent less cool looking overnight right (laughs) where they lose touch screen they lose touch screen technology and everything has to be made with a bunch of buttons right with a bunch of like lighted buttons yeah exactly that look like a like a yeah yeah and switches right lots of switches i love the switches Uh, i I just the door go whoosh every time it opens (laughs) it has to now that's just how it goes we have these two people behind the wall panel who pull it apart for us it's great you have to admit um you guys remember so the jump from the original series to the motion picture so you know they, they have a whole new enterprise and it looks like all super slick and uh, sleeker, at least, than what it looked like 10 years earlier. So I think you you can do that jump uh, in terms of uh, watching and sort of like gloss over that, I think. I think, maybe. I, th- I, I, mean, think, you're, yeah, I think you're willing to... N- Believe in a notional original series of Star Trek, wherein we kind of imagine that the events take place with the costumes and sets and resources of of a modern day show and link Mm. into the story continuity. I I suspect I'm willing to give it that level of suspension of disbelief. I'm okay Uh, with that. That's not my main problem. I mean, personally, and although, you know, I have tremendous respect for. The people who write the show and 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 the the sort of like what they're trying to do, I I think fundamentally the problem is the premise. It's if you do a prequel, uh, you're constrained in the kind of stories you can tell, uh, and and you do a prequel maybe also as a sort of business decision, uh, because then you know you 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 can have like um, Spock's long lost secret stepsister. You don't even, yeah. You don't even have to exaggerate. You can have Harry Mudd be a recurring uh, character. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like I that that's where I'm. I'm I mean, you constrain the kind of stories you can tell, and uh, um, or not if you jump into uh, you know the mirror universe. But the mirror universe to me was always like kind of a cop out. Mm. Uh, I never liked those mirror. I, was, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I'm sure all the people who listen know what the mirror universe is. So we should probably explain what that is. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Who wants to do that? Do you want me to do it? I can do it. I'll start with the first statement, is that (laughs) in the first original Star Trek show, there's an episode where there's a transporter accident, and they go to another dimension where Spock has a goatee, and it's evil Spock, and he has a goatee. And it introduces the idea that there are parallel dimensions where in one dimension, you might be a good guy and be clean-shaven, but in the other, you might have an evil twin with a goatee. And this has become very ingrained in the culture. And this idea gets carried forward into a lot of the Star Trek uh, series. Manu, I'll hand it over to you at this point to explain the rest of it. No, I mean, it, it becomes like a recurrent theme, 
because it's very useful if you want to do a bottle show again, a bottle episode. So, you know, you just change the makeup and uh, you switch it over and it's it's like shuffling the deck and like the characters are not what they are. And so uh, I think in DS9, you had like a Kira as a dominatrix. Yep. <laughs> uh, I mean, which which was kind of cool, uh, <laughs> but the value of a mirror universe, you know, the fundamental problem with a, a mirror universe is that you can have as many as you want, and so suddenly the stake of the main universe, if you will, or or our universe, sort of become diluted. It's in this infinite sea of possibilities. Right. And this is like, uh, this is a storytelling challenge that Rick and Morty has wrapped, has sort of <laughs> held, held on to with both As hands. want to do. Yeah. And re- really sort of, really sort of cashing out the, uh, the kind of the interpersonal and the emotional problems that happen when you <laughs> actually take seriously the, the idea of, you know, quantum, you know, infinite, infinite universes. It's, I mean, and I think it's not that it can't be that even if they head fake to that, to like, um, you know, uh, infinite quantum timeline possibility, uh, universes. It's like really, sliders. Yeah. Or as uh, they call it. Sliders. Oh, quantum leap. It's quantum leap guys. It's quantum leap. I'm sorry. It's like, it's like, but, uh, it's, but <laughs> he's going to wake up in a new universe, you know? <laughs> sorry. I think we have to consider it as a, as just a mirror universe, right? Like there's only, uh, there's only one, even though in, in- uh, so I mean, if you remember in TNG, there's this one episode where suddenly the enterprise, like there's a breach in the, you know, time, uh, continuum or like in space time continuum. And suddenly you have like these millions of enterprises that pop up, uh, at the same place and they're all different and sure. they're like the millions and millions of possible enterprises yeah i mean it's not yesterday's enterprise it's another episode which i can't remember right but now, a similar but. i mean a similar thing like there are multiple versions of of uh timeline kind of messing with in uh right in um there's the auto uh, in uh tng right like there's the yeah. auto the auto retconning uh one yes. like in ye- yesterday's enterprise where yes. like something happens and then suddenly the future is different and we all kind of jump to the different future except for Guinan yes. because you know uh Guinan. yeah but um uh but yeah that that is the one and in in one you know uh Riker is has a wild unkempt beard and is talking about how terrible it is that uh the federation oh, is the- at war that, that that's Riker's double, right? That's like his 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 brother made up of a reflecting transporter beam, something like that, who's mm-hmm. like stranded on a planet, and then he pops up back. It pops back up in DS9 as evil Riker, and he's also in, a dominatrix, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's really it's really a no, it's really a, a facial hair based uh, theory of of mm-hmm. I mean of quantum. Uh, but like okay, but like more 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 specifically, the Abrams you know reboots were all, are also of that ilk, it's sort of like there's just a sprinkle in the timeline. And uh, Spock has to repair it, and suddenly, you know, all the Vulcans. So that's in the first movie, uh, Star Trek 2009. And all in that timeline, precipitated by a mistake by Spock, the, all the Vulcans are uh, killed, except for a few that are saved. Um, and and it's sort of, uh, yeah. 
So, so Pete, well, Pete I'll tell it about here for a second. Oh, hold on a second here. I want to get in a, a key thought here because we're talking a lot about continuity and people talked a lot about continuity in Star Trek uh, for mm-hmm. a very long time. Um, but just want to say the thing that's all in our mind, which is that Star Trek continuity uh, is completely screwed up at this point. And it's like doing everybody a disservice. Right. Yes. Like the fans who are into the continuity have had it completely scrambled. And then the show creators are both constrained by it by trying to, like, fit their stuff to match a continuity and are also actively breaking it at the same yes. time. And so everything is just screwed up. And that, I think, is a, is a, is a huge it just starts uh, fans uh, uh, it's, you know, enjoyment off at a huge deficit. For it, and they had to make that up, and it's just kind of proving to be impossible in a lot of ways. It's this a show, show with the, the Abrams verse. It seems that it's a show at war with itself, which is in <laughs> yeah, itself. That's but it's interesting, it. right? Because then you know you see them wrestle, and and that's more of a meta commentary on the kind of story they're trying to tell. But they seem to be wrestling with that the same way fans would be. Um, you know, so okay, we're telling a story about the Klingon war, but with by the sixth episode or seventh episode, we're done, and we're moving on to something much more ominous. And it seems that you know that Lorca guy is no good. Like, is you know, you guys seen Bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel, uh, uh, the Abel Ferrara movie? It, it, that reminds me of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Port of Call, New Orleans. Yeah, <laughs> Out of Nicolas Cage allegiance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But the original one is like it's like Harvey Keitel is like going on a bender, you know, of coke and hookers, and uh, that's and it's fairly violent. And and there's a sense of you know it's bad captain now, uh, which is kind of the anchor of the show. Um, I'm I'm really my bet is that you know there's a mutiny at the beginning, uh, and there will be a mutiny at the end. And this time it's going to be the, a good mutiny or a mutiny that, you know, is not that is for the good of all. Like they will they will kill that SOB of Lorca. Uh, it's it's pretty clear. Why set up a mutiny at the beginning if it's not going to end with a mutiny at the end? Um, you know, like it's 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 all about the big payoff and the big character payoff and the big turn. Uh, and that's very uh, that's very, you know. Uh, Golden Age TV, right? It's like you develop the character so that they will pay off, um, and that—that's the lingo of the TV writer, uh, and it's kind of weird. All right, let me take a let me take us in in a, a couple different directions here because there's a lot of material now uh, mm-hmm. on the table. First, let's cash out this stuff about the Mirror Universe. Pete, can you can you just elaborate a little bit about why the Mirror Universe might be uh, important to this story, or why the idea of multiple realities or timelines might be important? to discovery because this was something that I did not in the final episode of the first half of the, of the, you know, at the, you know, season break this, you know, I didn't get a sense of what, uh, what was going on, but you screenshotted some things, uh, and showed them to me like the super fan you are. So Pete, give me a sense of why it's important that there is the idea of a mirror universe here. So we're at the end of chapter one of Star Trek Discovery after episode nine. That's where we're at. So spoilers up till that point. If you've watched the show past it at this point, you're watching it in the future timeline after we've recorded this. This podcast has traveled to you in the future. Very likely. Black alert. Black alert. Black alert. Black alert. (laughs) Uh, So 
everybody has been noticing that Lorca has been acting kind of strange for a Star Trek Starfleet captain. He's a little bit, his attitude is a little bit off. He carries weapons with him and in his pants. He seems to have old girlfriends that he doesn't really seem to relate to very well. He has old scars that she doesn't recognize. There's he's little a, things. Yep. He's a, he's a Twitter Nazi. I'm sure he's a good Nazi. <laughs> he also seems to be really fixated on specific people like Michael Burnham, who he's not m- presumably met before and goes to great lengths to try to keep them safe or not keep them safe. So there's a lot about Lorca that doesn't quite fit. And I think we can go back and discuss more about the consequences of these kinds of choices, of which there are a lot later on in the podcast. But in the ninth episode, we learn some new information, and we have a huge event that happens that potentially changes everything that Discovery has been about up until this point. So at the end of the episode, we're at the point where the Discovery is fighting the Klingon ship of the dead, or it's about to fight the Klingon ship of the dead, and they come up with this tactic for how to engage the Klingon cloak, and it involves using the spore drive to jump around the Klingon ship 130-some-odd times, 133 times, I believe, to get snapshots from all these different directions of its graphometric distortions in order to pinpoint the location of the ship. At this point, Lorca reveals to Stamets that or uh, that uh, or at least it's either either before this or right after this in line with the fact that they've been engaging in this plan that's been jumping the ship all over the place and also months and months of operating behind enemy lines making tons and tons and tons of jumps that while the ship has been making jumps Lorca has been privately cataloging the boundaries of subspace and potential interdimensional space. He has been looking for places where our universe intersects with another universe and somebody might be able to pass through. And he mentions to Stamets that after the Discovery finishes this battle, they can go and explore this other universe. The possibilities are are unlimited. Now, Stamets takes this to mean that Lorca is a closeted Picard and has been the whole time, Mm. that what Lorca really wants to do is go out there into the world and explore, and that's what Stamets wants to hear. And so he's willing to believe it, and Lorca is willing Mm. to charm him and get him to believe it. So Stamets is like, oh, you know, if the war were over, then we could explore with this guy. But Lorca might have more sinister intentions, or at least not honest intentions. And and this is what I screenshotted, which is that right when Discovery is making its final jump, right, Stamets says, well, I can only jump one more time. Lorca finds out that he's either going to get promoted away from ever being in control of a spaceship again or just straight up court-martialed by the whole, like, oh, you're going to win a medal when you come back. And and Stamets says, okay, I'm only going to jump once more. Lorca knows that now it's time he needs to make his move. And while they're jumping with the spore drive, he hits a bunch of buttons on his personal console on his chair. And uh, if you look over, if you look at the image and you freeze it or you look at other people on the internet who've frozen it, you see that Lorca has overridden the spore drive coordinates and put in new spore drive coordinates, which are listed as unknown by the computer. This then causes the spore drive to go wacky. The jump moves upward rather than downward, as most of the other jumps do. There's the weird icy crystallization of the interior of the sport chamber. Stamets experiences a Gary Mitchell-esque apotheosis, <laughs> wherein his eyes go white, and he starts like losing his ability to function as a human being, but also seems to be possessed of something. Um, and they've, they arrive in a debris field with navigational failure not really knowing where they are. And right before he does this, Lorca says, let's go home to himself. 
Okay, he's going home. Okay, so if you put all these things together, you think, okay, Lorca's not acting the way that a Starfleet captain should act, doesn't seem to have the social relationships that he should have, seems to have social relationships that he shouldn't have, has been studying. There's nothing about Lorca in the story so far that indicates that he likes to do scientific work on his own without delegating it. Lorca is a big delegator. He gives jobs mm-hmm. to other people and tells them to do them, even if it hasn't been figured out how, how to do it. So the idea that Lorca would keep it to himself, that he's charting the boundary between dimensions, tells me that he's doing it for a private reason, not because he thinks it would be a fun thing to do, like in his retirement, to drive a Winnebago across the universe. It's not like a second start of the right straight out until morning kind of situation. It's that he's trying to figure out how to break through and go home. Uh, so that's the idea, is that Lorca is potentially – when Lorca's ship was destroyed, the two Lorcas were switched, which is how the, uni- the uh, mirror universe usually works. There's some sort of catastrophic technology failure, an explosion, mm. a transporter accident, and then the Lorca from our world and the Lorca from the mirror universe were swapped with each other, and the Lorca who's in our universe is trying to get home from the mirror universe. Now, there's any number of varieties of that that might be the case. It might not be the case at all, but where we are at with the show right now, it seems pretty likely that there's some sort of story engagement with this alternative universe uh and that Lorca is a party to it whether he's from here and went there and came back or whether he's from there and came here and is going back and now he's bringing everybody with him seems to be the case so that that's what why the universe is the the uh mirror universe is relevant because now we're in the world of spock with a goatee not spock without a goatee and that kind of place, anything can happen, and you don't have to worry about disrupting the continuity all that much. Uh, we don't have- I, I I was wondering, you know, the, one of the questions I had after the, the last episode was, what if Lorca had been recruited from the Mirror Universe by some, you know, sort of uh, uh, swap or something like that? What if he had been recruited? Like Precisely. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> no, but you know, like, like as the crazy guy who's who's the is the only person who temperamentally could actually do what uh, the or lead the discovery to do what they did, which is very unfederation in a way, like being so ruthless. Um, I'm kind of one, you know, and being so devious and 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 devious with people. Uh, and with his own people. So I was kind of wondering if that's something that so could it's a, have been... It's a Chronicles of Riddick situation where the only way to fight evil is with another kind of evil. And Jane, Dame yeah. Judy Dench has to go find Vince. Yeah, and we don't have that around here because it's no. the Federation. Because <laughs> there's a bunch of milk drinkers. Mark, yeah. do, you have, do you have something? I, I have so many thoughts. Yeah, let's talk about Lorca a little bit more. And what you guys described in terms of the Mirror Universe stuff is very intriguing... Um, you know, kind of intellectually stimulating. But Lorca as a character, though, is such a huge turnoff for me and uh, drains a lot of my enthusiasm for the show and just how devious mm-hmm. and how much of an asshole he is. Um, I've written a couple of times uh, on the site about uh, kind of management theory and Star Trek, um, first with Burnham's active mutiny and and uh, kind of the prisoner's dilemma that uh, she and Captain Georgiou go through. And then again, with Lorca and uh, and Admiral Cornwell's uh, actions going on and sort of the, the very compromised situation that they put themselves in. And those are really just kind of scratching the surface of it. And, and I go on as well to talk about just the constant acts of uh, insubordination and, and disobeying orders and things like that. But Lorca just, like, takes everything to a level, I, I think we all, all agree, uh, that we haven't seen in Star Trek before. And, and maybe this is me 
know, looking at it with rosy frame, rosy, rosy colored Picard glasses and that, you know, he's such this, mm. uh, you know, idealized uh, leadership figure. But it's, it's to me, it's so frustrating to watch. It's such a departure from previous uh, Star Trek captains. And, and I also mentioned that in this particular moment that we're having with the crisis of leadership in the White House, I'll go ahead and say it uh, because of Trump. Um, a lot of us are looking for an escape from that, a Starfleet captain who we can have faith in and, and, and trust as our hero, as our as our as our as our, as our leader, as a rational. Uh, hey, but maybe our, our hero is, is Burnham. Oh, Burnham is absolutely hero and her heroics, you know, are, are something that I think uh, I, I think fans can get behind. Um, but. The decision to make uh, this asshole captain so much a, 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 a part of the show seems like what we're talking about before the show being a war with itself, right? The you know the the positive Starfleet aspects uh, of it at war with this uh, desire to make things dark and and be part of this prestige television movement and have complex characters. I don't like it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I don't like Lorca, and I don't like this part of the show. And I'll leave it to the, to the rest of you guys to say, say, try to find something redeeming about it or just back me up in my not liking it. Well, I mean, they, they use Latin titles for episodes. So that's something that is a huge turnoff for me. I mean, it's okay. It sounds no, no, but like you know, it it because it's supposed to sound to make it all like super serious uh, and ponderous, and you know, Ron Moore would do that. Like I think it's in in Deep Space Nine. He, he wrote that episode, uh, Inter Arma Enim Silent Liggets, uh, you know, like, uh, which which is a Cicero quote, I believe, where, you know, in times of war, the law is silent. And you're like, OK, you know, we get it. It's serious. Um, I don't I I, I I second what Mark says. I agree. Uh, I it, It's they're they're trying something new and and we're old. How about that? Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're wrong, but I mean, I sort of, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if it's not old. I feel like the, the Tony Soprano model of Star Trek captain, right? Like Lorca as a Lorca as a kind of conflicted, ambivalent antihero, you know, is, or even Burnham, right? Like she disobeys. Uh, she disobeys uh, poor Michelle Yeoh and she dies. She dies. I mean, I yeah. want the show, you know, uh, like, um, I, I'm not sure. I think that actually Michelle, Michelle Yeoh with a goatee is still out there, by the way. She can <laughs> <come back. laughs> maybe she'll be back. Uh, maybe, she'll maybe. certainly be back. She's got to, right? But we'll see. Anyway, too, sorry, go ahead. Too big yeah. a name. I mean, you know, uh, but the, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's also a little bit. Do, wouldn't you rather watch the show about her? You know, this this yeah. is to yeah. me. It's, uh, it's yeah, not necessarily. It's not necessarily like a stakes related problem. But th- this is the problem with me to uh, about mirror universe stories very often because usually the the. You know, the alternate reality involves loosening some restriction, uh, 
or like changing some like fundamental constraint that makes the universe of the show the universe of the show. Like very often, the mirror universe is a lot more fun than the actual universe. And you're like, well, how how about I have this show of, that's fun where you know we all go around, we go to goatee conventions, we like uh, you know we learn to 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 trim and maintain our facial hair. Um, that uh, and you know we we uh, do things like that rather than rather than just we actually do boldly go rather than just kind of boldly plotting um uh, you know as I, we do I, I think there's again we're we're in the problem of the premise here it's a prequel there are like within known boundaries like in the, in the timeline it's before you know like it's before kirk it's a little loose it's a war with the klingons um they, there's there's we know how it, the, the problem is like we know that it ends well. Uh, we know that you know ten years from now Kirk is going to be there and it's going to be you know the swinging sixties and and so what can the show say that we don't know? Well, what it can do is like oh and there were really bad captains in Starfleet and maybe they came from the mirror universe I, because sure. otherwise how do you make it spicy uh, or, or what what are the stakes? So uh, I have an, a, a theory about the show. Quick, okay. a quick theory about the show, and because I've been trying to figure out how to like it, because every time I, I have a complaint with it, it's different. <laughs> like every episode, I complain <laughs> about it for a different reason, which leads me to think that I'm sort of uh, trying to find a firing solution with my sonar on how to enjoy this television show. <laughs> uh, and I do enjoy it, but I'm trying to I, I'm trying to figure it out. So, what is the discovery discovering? <laughs> we have a situation with well, – we've already expressed a situation where Lorca, one of the main characters of the show, up until this point in the story, might have been fundamentally different than how we understand him to be, which makes it hard for us to retroactively look back at the early episodes and consider how we might have kind of connected with him on an emotional level. If Lorca was lying the whole time and wasn't telling us the truth, then it's hard to – connect the events that are happening around him to him in a way that serves the entertainment. It becomes more mysterious. At the same time, Michael Burnham is also a character who's in the process of becoming. Starts out very different in the first two episodes, gets mm. busted down to being a prisoner, then ends up on the ship. You get the sense that Michael Burnham is going through an amorphosis and is eventually going to arrive at some sort of stable place. If this show is going to last for seven years, as these shows often do, that that needs to happen. Michael Burnham needs to arrive at some sort of equilibrium, but Michael Burnham's not there yet. We haven't talked about uh, – well, we talked about Stamets, who has gone through some sort of Gary Mitchell transformation, which is a reference to the original series. Is he going to stick around? Maybe, maybe not. But if he does, he's going to be really different. Same with Saru. He in hmm. encountered this alien life force that got inside of his head and seems to have really affected him personally and emotionally. We know that Tilly – believes that she's going to become the captain and that there's some sort of at least possible timeline in which she does become the captain because Stamets calls her captain when he so, sees so, her. So, so you're, you're trying to call out the arcs of every character, right? That's yes, the... and it's interesting. Yeah, and because the arcs are folded. Mm. Anti-time, Manu, anti-time. <laughs> yes. The arcs are folded back on themselves and exist in a subspace <laughs> collapse of time and anti-time because each character is already the thing that they are becoming. 
Like Ash, like the, the people at this point have probably figured out that there's some sort of mm. connection between Ash Tyler and Voke, the Klingon at the beginning yeah. of the episode, who's played by an actor that nobody's heard of, who happens to have the last name that the actor who plays Ash was born with and doesn't use anymore. Right? Like so it's yeah. like, oh like there's a connection between Ash and Voke. But like Ash was always had a connection with Voke. Like if, if it's revealed in the future that Ash is you know has Voke's consciousness inside of him, or Ash is like a memory implant on top of a, a Voke who is, and Voke is the albino Klingon, uh, is um, and has, is a memory implant on top of an albino Klingon who's been surgically altered to turn him into a human, or something along those lines. Uh, then, but uh, this will always have been true about Ash. But then we only know the information that we need to really put his his actions in context later. Yeah. We have to go back and we have to identify them from the beginning. And so that makes it hard to figure out what you, what the stakes are and what's going on and what the premise of the show even is. Because if it changes episode to episode with each of the characters fundamentally changing, what not just what is true about them now, but what was always true about them. But it then, seems, yeah, it yeah. seems that, you know, like they, they drop the Michelle Yeh exploration, the first ship, then it's on the Discovery, then the war with the Klingon doesn't seem to be the thing about the show that's important now mm. which is also like a you know like they made a big big deal of you know this is the war with the klingon and uh, the klingon empire and and suddenly it was like it wasn't that hard because <laughs> no. well, i think the showrunners have said that it's they're going to tell a bunch of different stories and that this is the war story so it's not meant to be star trek klingon wars it's meant to be star trek discovery and the thing that the discovery or or the discover is it this is it is the discovery that's happening within our hearts the whole time is that like we're discovering the characters we're discovering them not the world around them and the and the Klingon war is not important which is tricky because the Klingon war is like the one plot line that's unifying everything wait Peter, are, you, are you saying that I could have clicked my slippers together all <laughs> along and uh, gone gone to the thing. No, that's that's a bad joke. Well, how's this for a bad joke? Well, if Voke is inside Ash, then uh, it's appropriate that he and Burnham got together uh, at the dance party. You know why? <laughs> why? Voke, let your body move to the music. <laughs> Voke. <laughs> oh man! Let your uh, body wrong, go with the flow. Man, wrong, wrong, wrong genre of music. This this show's all supposed to be about the disco, baby. <laughs> yes, disco. <laughs> Captain Kirk, Doctor Bones, Robert is Picardo, <laughs> Captain Janeway, Harry Kim. <laughs> if you look over, you could see him. Like, folk, oh. folk, you got to let your cling on. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, uh, also, by the way, Stamets, because that's yeah. that's one of the big things. Like they're they're doing like a super hard sell on the fact that yeah, there's a gay character on the show. Um, Not just a gay character, Anthony freaking Rap, legend. Well, right. I mean, you know, and I'm playing play gay characters in fiction. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's super cool. Well, like gay I, characters I, I, being in gay friendly. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking of Rent. Mark in Rent is not gay, yeah. but Rent is a yeah, yeah. touchstone right. in the mainstreaming of, of gay characters in pop culture. I, and I think, you know, like, uh, at least I give them props for this because it doesn't seem weird, you know, uh, or like tacked on as, say, the Sulu part moment in the the Star Trek Beyond uh, movie. Was it Beyond or is it? No, yeah. it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And so, so I, I thought that that's kind of cool. But the, my, it, it, so that's not the part that I'm worried about with Stamets. What I'm worried about with Stamets is like he's not that bright. The guy is getting played. Oh. I mean, and no, but he's like he's totally getting played in his relationship with a doctor or in his relationship oh, with, with his captain. With what? Yeah, with Lorca. He's oh, with totally Lorca. getting. Yeah, <laughs> he, he and everyone else, to be fair, right? <laughs> Yeah, but you know he's supposed to be like this is the guy. He's, he's essentially like a guild navigator. Like he can, you know, he can project and and compute all that in his head. And like you know, he can take the ship anywhere in the universe or in the multiverse. And you know, he's like he doesn't see through Lorca really. Well, that, the I guy's mean, a mentat. That, I that's, mean, you know, that's, it's, a, it's it's interesting. Like to to what extent are we supposed to see? Uh, to what extent is the goatee invisible? Right. Mm. Like, uh, mm. to what extent are we are are we supposed to see the mustache twirling? You know, yeah. the, the like the second the second I heard, uh, oh, I'm going to make one last joke. Right. I thought he's dead. And I looked down at my phone and played some Angry Birds. Right. That's because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have Angry Birds anymore. Well, one you meant one last jump. Right. Yeah. Oh, jump, yeah. Although in, in a way, it one is last quite, joke. It's, it is a joke. Oh, sorry. I'm going to make one last joke. Uh Vogue, let your body. <laughs> no, sorry. But just I had my I had my funny joke on on my mind. But like, right, like because it's you know a little bit like oh one last jump. I mean one last heist, and then I'm out. Then I'm out, Lorca. I'm out. Okay, sure you're out. Right, like you sort of you know that story so well, and like to to a certain extent, like I I wonder how much the mustache twirling. Um, <laughs> That seems apparent to us uh, with Lorca or the the goatee stroking, right? That seems apparent to us with Lorca is, you know, is or should be invisible to uh, invisible to the other characters. I, you know, I don't know. Pete, you have a thought well, about that? Every, every character has an invisible mustache in this show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham certainly has one. Burnham's capable of, of all sorts of violence and, and also is incredibly emotionally repressed in a way that she doesn't entirely have a handle on as a human being because she wasn't raised around human beings. <laughs> and, and I do appreciate that the, mov- that the movie, the show has gone to the trouble of making that an actual problem hmm. for her, that she doesn't relate to people. Uh, and that's really interesting, especially because it is part of this sort of intersectional rep- uh, representation. But Stamets had a mustache, too. When, when Burnham first showed up, Stamets is like distant and cruel and and like really he's sassy but not in a fun way <laughs> you know it's right. it's uh i mean mark you know what i'm talking about yeah well my question for you then is what about tilly uh she's is this, she the uh, supposed to be the innocence and naivete on the ship does she have a goatee as well uh, I mean, she's got that hair that she manages to hide up in that bun somehow. I don't know how she manages to do that. <laughs> uh, anti hair. I no, think she, hair, she's a bad girl. Tilly's at all. She's a bad girl. Tilly's bad news. Tilly's mustaches. Tilly's mustaches. That she's Janeway, and she's Janeway hiding in like in uh inside of of. Wesley, right? Which, or maybe if not Janeway, then somebody even more hard hard nosed. I mean, because we if if think about this, like Tilly, like well, I guess what this is. We know that Saru has a mustache. We know that Ash has a mustache. We know that Lorca has a mustache. Burnham has a mustache. Uh, uh, Stamets has a mustache. If we then extrapolate that Tilly has a mustache, okay. 
let's let's um put let's locate Tilly's mustache in the same way that you would locate a Klingon ship by identifying the gravity field around her. Hmm. What are the things that that like are centers of gravity mm. around? As around. Yo, as as Yoda says, go to where the gravity is. There <laughs> shall your mustache be. So Tilly does no doesn't do any cardio. <laughs> like Tilly doesn't run, right? And 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 Tilly is learning how to run. And uh, Tilly is super nice and super sweet. She doesn't know how to be mean, except she. Kind Kind of does right yeah right she can so, fight yeah she can and so and so when i think about this i'm thinking okay so in the future if tilly's going to become a captain she's going to run like she's going to be physical right she's mm. going to and she's going to fight people tilly is 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 captain kirk is what my prediction she's not Captain kirk specifically but tilly could become something of a captain kirk analog potentially like somebody who who gets in there does like how is tilly going to rise from being a cadet to being a captain within the time frame of this show unless they do it as sort of a, a different world kind of like we're going to go through school and learn things and then we're going to graduate uh but like if she gets thrown into a command situation because Lorca gets killed in a mutiny and and all of a sudden tilly is the one who's able to take control so this oh, is right. you're saying, uh, by you're the saying way that this is a battleship situation <laughs> where tim riggins from friday night lights is good because he is the like the senior commissioned officer he's gonna uh, command that he's gonna command the battleship yeah and burnham is gonna be the liam neeson who is on a battleship outside of an alien but, force but, field you, and unable guys, to intervene <laughs> but, but you guys notice like what we're talking about here like by talking about the mustache or the beard i should say because uh, at this point it's pretty big but like we're talking about you know how they're setting up the characters so that there will be a later payoff which is kind of the standard of what you do in a multi-episode um sort of soprano slash uh, Game of Thrones TV, which is you have like all these little clues there and here, and the character will go from point A to point B and will have learned something. And you know, over the course of that, so what he we're talking about the potential, contempt, they'll have no. learned something. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I mean, you know, I'm a kind of a fan of Seinfeld, mm -hmm. uh, and the motto of Seinfeld was no hugging and no learning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but and, you know, what? a little bit, the, the motto of the next generation was no hugging and no learning. As Exactly. Well, right. Yeah, I like that. They, they're already perfect. Well, I mean, they learned within the arc of the single episode, and then they forget everything, and they have to relearn all those lessons again when they're confronted with the next space anomaly. Right. Except for Worf. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like they're already perfect. So that's what's so inspirational about it. Like, what is there to learn except at the margins? You know. Uh, oh yeah, Captain Picard. Like he has to overcome his. Uh, his spite for kids. But other than that, yeah, you know, life's pretty good. This is not the case on this show. This show is about character arcs, which is the sort of, by the time we're done with the golden age of TV, we, we will have seen so many people evolve from blah to blah. And yeah, I, I, that's why I can't get into it. Well, because so, I, I know the mechanics of it. I know they're going to end up at a different place than where they started, because that's what you do in the sort of like 13 or 26 episodes long arc story. And that to me is like, 
eh, okay. Well, I, th- I think it's not necessarily that people change. I think it's, I think w- I, if I had to venture a guess, not to put words in your mouth, but what you're reacting to is that the idea, the ways that, the ways in which people change, right? The, me- the mechanisms through which they change have become, uh, trite and predictable. They were always trite, but they've become predictable. And you can kind of see, you can kind of, you can kind of see your way around them. But that's, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, but like think Breaking Bad, you know, like Breaking Bad, the premise was like, he's a good guy and he's going to go from good guy to awful guy. Um, and it's and, and what's interesting is like the way he falls down They're OK, so they're going to become captains, good guys. I mean, I don't know that the idea, uh, the idea of Breaking Bad, I think, is a, it, my read on Breaking Bad was a little different. It's a show that realized that kind of revealed the bad guy he was all along um but the the uh another mustache and goatee by the way big beard big beard breaking guy. bad takes place in the mirror universe you heard it here first <laughs> unless you read it somewhere else five years ago no but the breaking... irony i mean and the irony of breaking bad is that it's about meth but in fact you know the opioid epidemics was going on that was yeah. the real thing that was going on. but like Anyhow, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, well, I mean, so the, dramatur- dramaturgically, when you start Westworlding your show, right, which I, I think mm. is what's what's going on, um, yeah. when you start dropping clues to some sort of like greater reality that's going to be uh, that's going to be revealed later on, um, you you end up in a. It's like, you know, once we asked uh, Jordan Stokes, our resident musicologist, about dubstep and about the kind of the, the uh, ontology of the drop, right? And he said something interesting, which is that, you know, it divides time into two... Um, it divides time into two uh, components before the drop and once the bass has been dropped, you know, before the and then you drop the bass and the bass has been dropped. Mm. It's this sort of it's this sort of uh, bimodal uh, thing. It's and it's a, like a one way gate you can pass through in storytelling. Yeah. Like you, you, uh, you know, you learn. Well, spoilers for Westworld, I guess you learn that it's multiple, multiple timelines. Right. Mirror, that that sometimes. uh Oh, who is Bernard? Jeffrey Wright has a has a uh, mustache, and sometimes he doesn't. Um, that right, like, and and so it's an it, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because it's it's about uh, it's about a stasis that already exists, but that is hidden from you as a viewer, rather than being about something that that changes on account of. The... And, and you realize that that's about in the end, that's about the art and the performance of the people who are behind the show. Like it's 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 almost like an an assertion of power from the writers. Well, yeah, there's a cert, there's a kind of a bravura. Uh, you right. know, sort of show show offiness to it, and this is connected to the business model around how it's a streaming subscription thing, and they have to constantly reveal and hide and hide and reveal mm. uh, to keep you to, to to keep you for paying the the, the monthly fee uh, and ongoing and ongoing going. Um, and and Matthew, I which wanted, is interesting, oh, by the way, because yeah. like they they you know some shows I, I looked at that before uh, we taped this, um, so. House of Cards, when they release a season, they release it, or, or uh, Orange is the New Black. It's like they release a block of episodes. Like the whole season is like, boom. And you um, and you watch it because it's on Netflix and you're already paid. And you binge watch. This, like they're doing, you know, they're doing like linear TV, but on a subscription basis. So it's a pretty naked play for you to keep mm-hmm. on 
paying. Um, and now, by the way, you know, I mean, like, so there's this hiatus. So what do people do? They're going to cancel their subscription for December and re-up in uh, January for, you know, uh, when the show returns or like they're going to spend December watching reruns of uh, or, you know, binge watching uh, season 47 of The Big Bang Theory. I mean, telling like, you, man, it's all about man with a plan starring Matt LeBlanc as a dad <laughs> contractor who helps his wife, who's a phlebotomist, take care of their kids. <laughs> I thought it was NCIS Moncton or something like that. Uh, anyhow, I, it's pretty clear that, uh, yeah, the sort of maintaining the. Uh, uh, the tease and the reveal and the teasing, the constant teasing, the the sort of like, um, is it, it's 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 keeping the 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 fans and the people who watch in a state of hysteria. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. Uh, it's it's the show and don't show, and it's 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 about hysteria. It's it's about desire. Uh, it's about unfulfilled desire, and it's about uh, maintaining that level of excitement without ever reaching the moment where you're like, oh, I've had enough. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the business model. Right, so con- uh, compare and contrast that then with <laughs> and that's the— And uh, would you say that—sorry, sorry, Mark, I'm, I'm stomping you. Uh, would you say that uh, if it's about seduction, and if the writers of the show are some kind of seduction community, would you say that the show, with its beginning and a mutiny, oh, is like is, oh, is necking? Uh, oh, it's, <laughs> it's a total neck. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, and the Mark. Fans, and the fans are so happy to take it. Because well, they're fans, you know, like fandom. Like the way they look at fandom is, these are people who will buy the same thing over and over and over again. Like how many versions of Star Trek TNG did you buy? Like you get the VHS, you get the DVD, you get a DVD special edition, you get the Blu-ray, the Blu-ray special edition. Like they will keep on buying the same thing over and over again. Wait, I don't. So of course I, I, masochistic. How dare how dare and, you suggest that entertainment industry executives don't have anything but the highest regard for the unique traditions of of fan culture? Anyway, Mark, oh, I, I'm Mark. I stomped you, and I'm sorry. Let it let it. Yeah, flow. man. I, I want you to catch on something you mentioned on Twitter a while back and uh, also recently about the business model of the next yeah. generation actually and how uh, the fact that it was syndicated in a certain way allowed it to tell the type of stories that it did and how basically it's impossible to do that now well i mean star trek's always been at the forefront of new uh, distribution models uh first you know like first uh, in the 60s it was like a niche show for a niche audience on one of the big three networks and they proved that it kind of could work and the, the fans could get activated, like the famous write-in campaign and all that stuff. The next generation, when it came out, uh, they decided to go straight to syndication rather than through a network. And the idea was it was packaged with – they negotiated with every individual station and it was packaged as you can uh, keep the money from the reruns of the original series – and you will take next generation if you want to show the original series and you will take the next generation and we keep the money from the ads on the next generation and that was paramount negotiating directly with the uh tv stations it's because paramount at the time didn't have a network if you guys remember then they tried upn and all that stuff um but it afforded roddenberry incredible freedom because suddenly there was one uh, fewer layer of you know gatekeeping in terms of what could be shown, uh, 
normally when you write a TV show for networks, it, it works like this. You're the writer producer, then you, or, you know, are you the writer? Then you have the producer, the producer works with a studio and the studio works with a network. And at each level you need approval and everybody has notes and it becomes this collective cluster where uh, the network people are like, no, we can't show this. Then the studio people are like, no, we can't show this, but we can show that. Can you change it? I have notes, this, that, and the other. It's a mess. <coughs> so next generation, they eschewed all that. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had complete control over what was on the show, and he could do whatever the hell he wanted to, and he did. Uh, and it really changed TV because it showed that you could actually, again, do niche nerdy TV science fiction, which supposedly doesn't work on broadcast. That's what the CBS guy said about uh, Discovery. Uh, and they proved that it worked, that there was a public for it, that it was incredibly popular, and that it could make tremendous amount of money. Uh, and the proof is they get greenlit to get a spin-off, Deep Space Nine, and then another one, and then another one. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, th there was a big creative change. I'm not sure that the, the success of Next Generation is actually down to Gene Roddenberry's creative vision, no. right? Like, because it, it only got good. It only got good in season three. Once it died. Once, wow. Almost one. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it took a while to, you know, get on its feet, but... Already, like the kind of stuff they were showing on Next Generation in season one, you know, like uh, at the end of season one, there's this whole discussion of, you know, capitalism. And you're like, what? Uh, I, I I still think there was like a sense of freedom of and sometimes good, sometimes bad. And it's true. There are not that many episodes in the first two seasons that so are. What, what's what's the deal with Discovery then and All Access? Ah, So All Access is a different model, right? It's. They think they cannot show that. That's what they said. We cannot show a science fiction doesn't do well on broadcast, which is probably true at this point, because do people I mean, like when you look at audiences and, you know, audience counts, they, it's just going down for broadcast network. So they want to make this transition. And they thought, well, we have this install based of fans who will pay for whatever we give them and let's make it right and let's make it big and let's relaunch or or use that as a launch pad to really get our separate all access streaming service going um you know which is both and the, and the streaming service is both a catch-up tv so you have all the episodes ever made of Big Bang Theory and whatever and whatnot, you know, all these great CBS shows. Uh, <clears throat> Although you and, don't necessarily get all those episodes, but that's not worth delving into right now. Yeah, you know, and, and then, but like, think about it this way. So you're paying um, either $7.99 or $6.99 a month with ads or $9.99 without ads. Um, so the, the, if you're a devoted fan and, you know, you want to keep on watching and rewatching Star Trek Discovery after the run is over, uh, you will keep on paying the subscription, right? So Right, sure. So I was making this calculation. So what's the revenue per user, the average revenue per user? Um, let's say, you know, there's low churn and because they're fans and you have like 3 million Star Trek fans out there who will pay for it in the U.S., right? So per year, you know, we're at about... 
okay, with churn and, you know, and people are cheap and there are problems and all that. But let's say, you know, a conservative $60 per user per year, right? If you have 3 million people who signed up just to watch Star Trek and each of them pay $60 a year, you're $180 million in revenue right there. This is so much more profitable than showing it on TV. Well, it's crazy. Yeah. Sure. And not, and not just that. Um, Netflix picked up half of the tab of the show uh, for worldwide rights, except, you know, I think in Canada and Australia. Uh, so it's a Netflix show in England, for instance. Um, and Netflix picked up half of the tab. And the number I saw was the budget was $150 million. So it's like $10 million per episode, which is insane. Uh, but you sh- you see it on you know you see it uh, on the screen, um, and it's not the actors who are paid well, nor the writers, except for Akiva Goldsman. Uh, so it's like these guys are they're making bank, they're just making bank, uh, and proof of that, Disney is not going to do a Star Wars uh, live action show on their soon-to-launch uh, online platform. Sure, they're also bringing the the Marvel anthology, the Marvel yeah. um, New York shows, the Defender shows onto uh, the the Disney platform as well. I mean, I've, I've made this remark before, but pretty soon, you know, given this proliferation of streaming yeah. services, someone is going to have to come along and aggregate a lot of scre- streaming services together and deliver it, deliver it in one package for one month monthly fee to your house somehow uh perhaps over a cable maybe yeah. it will be a cable company yeah it may be, well, maybe. I, think, I think it'll be comcast with a goatee is what it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> all right we might we might have to leave our conversation there man thank you very much for joining us and it's always a pleasure to talk about always. star trek with you you can get uh manu's book trekonomics the economic of uh, the economics of star trek uh in the show notes for this episode we'll put a link in there thanks also very much to pete and mark and to you for listening uh we will be back with more over thinking it podcast next week till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. live long and prosper Okay, okay, okay. So here's my theory, right? So Anthony Rapp was in rent in New York, and then but he left New York to go to be in rent in London, and then Wilson Cruz, he joined the cast of Rent as Angel, but after Anthony Rapp had left. So when Anthony Rapp's character Stamets says to Wilson Cruz's character, the doctor, when we get back, we should go watch La Boheme together. Of course, you know that Rent is based on La Boheme, so it's kind of the same story, but of course it's, it's AIDS instead of tuberculosis, and it's slightly different in these other sorts of ways. But the point mm. being that in the future, they're going to go see La Boheme together, which is inspired by Rent, which is a show that they were both in, and they're both trying to be in a relationship, but they could never be in Rent at the same time, because Anthony Rapp was in London when Wilson Cruz was in New York. And can't, can't you see? Yeah, can't you yeah, see yeah. All and then, then, then they're together, they're going to adapt La Boheme into a new musical called yes! post, Post-Capitalism No Rent, and it's going to be La Boheme, <laughs> but with mushrooms. <laughs>
And tardigrades. 525,600 525,000 warp cores of breach. Anti-spores, Data! Anti-spores! How about spores? <laughs> hey Pete, what's up? We're not gonna do black alert. <laughs>